Well, over the last couple days, there's been a video going viral on the internet. And it is, I'm not talking about the one where the cats jump in and out of the boxes. You guys have seen that one? I think I've seen that one twice. Um, It's a video of a Christian man named Monty Williams, the assistant coach of the OKC Thunder basketball team, the Oklahoma City Thunder basketball team. And uh, he is giving a eulogy for his wife at her funeral. His wife died on February 10th as a woman lost control of her own car driving 90 miles an hour in a 40 mile an hour zone. The car went over the center divider and then ran head on into his wife's car. Both drivers died. And the eulogy is really amazing not because of the emotions or his his ability to speak, um, but because of his amazing resilience in the character of God. That's why it's amazing. Coach Williams' eulogy reflected the fact that while he and his five children uh, will and are experiencing pain and suffering, yet he possesses a supernatural hope. Despite his family's circumstances, he spoke unflinchingly about who God is, despite the circumstances. God is good, he quoted. This is a verse that he led off in this eulogy. Psalm 73, 1, God is good to his people. And then he followed that one up with 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And then he followed that one up with Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And if you watch it, I encourage you guys to watch it. Just Google search Monty Williams' eulogy and you'll find it on YouTube. If you watch it, you'll see that there is not a shred of doubt in that man's heart. But all confidence and security in God. That's why it's amazing. It's amazing because if something like that happened to me or happened to you, we might not be so strong in the faith. Maybe we would fear the future. I mean, you know, there's him and then his five children. Maybe we would question the goodness of God. Maybe we would doubt God's love for us. Maybe we would lose hope, give in to despair, turn to acts of desperation as we face the uncertainty of the situation. In our lack of confidence and security that we might potentially face if we were in his situation, Monty Williams becomes an amazing example. How is it that we as Christians uh, can face the future with faith? That's kind of the question that our passage this morning answers. How can we as Christians face the future with faith? And here's the answer if you're taking notes. It's actually an answer that kind of comes up in every single chapter in Genesis. By ensuring that our faith rests on God and his unrelenting faithfulness to his promises. Question, how is it that we as Christians can face the future with faith? The answer is, by ensuring that our faith rests on God and his unrelenting faithfulness to his promises. And that's what Genesis chapters 47 to 50 is about. I invite you guys to turn there with me right now. Genesis chapter 47 to 50. We have come to the end of Genesis, and very appropriately, the chapters wrap up everything that's come before. And here, Moses, as he's writing down this history for his people, he reminds us of some very fundamental truths of God 
that should shape the ways in which we live our lives. Uh, Genesis is all about, about origins. The origin of the universe. That's found in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. As God created all things, he created you and me to be in relationship with him. It's about the origins of the universe and man. It's also about the origins of his people. About the patriarchs. Here we got the history of the patriarchs. There's, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, and then there's Jacob's sons. And more importantly, Genesis is about God's faithfulness to all of them. All by his sovereign grace. Today, we see that we can face any situation with confidence and security in our faith because God is relentless to fulfill his promises to his people. And uh, these chapters here today, they showcase God's faithfulness in two particular ways. And as they do, we are to learn from them and lean on them as we fight to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's go ahead and jump into point number one, God's faithfulness to Jacob. This is the first way that God's faithfulness is seen, God's faithfulness to Jacob. Let me give you a little bit of context uh, where we're at if you're joining us for the first time. As we left off in the story last week, Jacob's sorrow and mourning are turned to joy. He thought his son Joseph was dead, but in God's sovereign, sovereign providence, his son was alive and actually doing very well. So what had happened is that his brothers, out of hatred and jealousy, they plot to kill him, but eventually sell him into slavery. He gets trucked off to Egypt, and his brothers, they go on and they lead their father, Jacob, to believe that Joseph had been torn apart by wild animals. And Joseph's story, if you've been tracking with us, is a difficult one. Sold by his brothers, jailed in Egypt, falsely accused, slandered. But eventually, as is the case for all the people of God, after humiliation comes exaltation. God raises Joseph to the number two man in the land of Egypt. The only one above him is Pharaoh at the time. And here, Joseph oversees everything in the kingdom. Eventually, a famine hits the land. And in 41, chapters 40, chapter 41, verse 57, all the earth streams to Egypt and then Joseph in particular to find food. Which means, too, that eventually Jacob and his family will be going down to Egypt. As we saw last week, the brothers bow before Joseph. They have no idea who he is, but they come before him. Joseph is overseeing the distribution, the selling of the food there. And all the brothers are bowing before him. And even though it was in his power to jail him or to execute him, instead he chooses reconciliation. We saw that moving passage where he reveals that it is him, and then he falls on their necks and weep. He weeps. So 22 years after selling Joseph into slavery, the brothers are finally reunited. And an amazing display of grace and love and a great trust in God's sovereignty. Look at what Joseph says to his brothers in 45 verse 4. Chapter 45, verse 4. It says there, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. It's amazing trust in God's sovereignty, isn't it? 
amazing display of forgiveness too. And then as we pick up in the story, the brothers go home to get their father and their own families, and a company of 70 people come down, they leave Canaan, and then they eventually sojourn in Egypt to find a new home. And then look at 46 verse 2, and you see, you have this beautiful affirmation of God's covenant promise, even in the midst of, of a certain degree of unknown. And God spoke to Israel, that is Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. We see that here that Jacob and his family are delivered from a famine, and without doubt in ways that they had never expected. And we see God's faithfulness to Jacob as God provides for him. We see God's faithfulness to Jacob as God provides for him. And there you can turn to chapter 47. The family moves down to Egypt and they end up settling in the best land. Interesting, right? They're, they're experiencing famine and they, the Hebrew people, go down to Egypt and there they live in the best land near the Nile River on fertile ground. And it's amazing there, God, he solves two problems, right? The problem of a missing son and the problem of the threatening famine, look there in 47 verse 21. It says, and Joseph, the long lost son, provided for his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food. We've noted earlier that there's a lot of irony here, right? Jacob rebuked Joseph for having the dream that he did, where he dreamed that all the brothers, in fact his parents too, would be bowing down before him. And they're rebuked for that. Even the brothers hate him for these things, but now, praise God, that Joseph is in the position that he is, all by God's sovereignty and all by his grace. There we see that God's faithfulness is providing for Jacob. But not only that, God makes his family prosper. God makes his family prosper. And uh, 47, the, uh, chapter 47, 13 to 26, tells of this story um, where basically the Egyptians... They're running out of food. They're running out of money. They got nothing left. And they have to go on and sell themselves, their very own selves, to Pharaoh to be his servants. Basically, to be his slaves. They got nothing. But yet, Israel and the 70 people here are very well provided for. If you look back up there in verse 11, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. It's interesting because all the Egyptians are going to be selling everything, but yet Pharaoh, by God's providence, through Joseph, is given a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph provided for his father, provided for everybody. And look at 47 verse 19, you see how desperate the Egyptians are. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? And then he basically says, buy us and our, and our food, that we will be servants to Pharaoh. It's fascinating, you know, once again, to see that in God's sovereignty, what he's doing with the Hebrew people. We've got to step back a little bit, right? And we have to consider, after, real, after reading all of the history and knowing what happens, here they come down to Egypt as 70 people. When they leave, hundreds of years later, they are, some scholars say, into the millions as they leave Egypt. So they don't become a great peoples in the land of Canaan, but they become a great peoples in Egypt. And God is working in ways in which to 
bring about his plan and to not only provide for Jacob and his family, but then also make them prosper. Look at verse 27. Just have like a, a resolution here. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. You see God's sovereign providence here? Jacob and his family are provided for, and then they go on and prosper, but the Egyptians do not. And they're said to do what God calls Adam and Eve to do, to be fruitful and to multiply back in Genesis chapter 1. He says, be, fru- uh, Genesis chapter two, be fruitful and multiply. And then here, that's exactly what we see God's people doing. And then we know too that in a matter of a few centuries, God will finally move just at the right time. To gather his people together as a nation. Turn over to the book of Exodus. Just one book over. Just flip flip, uh, a few pages to the right. And you see there here what kicks off this story. Or at least the setting before we get into the Exodus. Where God leads his people out of Egypt. You look there in verse 7. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So that the land was filled with them. So something's going on right here. We don't exactly know until we continue to read. But something is going on according to God's sovereign providence behind what we're reading of. We know that there are the sovereign promises given to Abraham there. God promises to give him a land, a people. And that one from his people would be a blessing to the nations. And here nothing can stop God's promises from coming to fruition. All for his glory and for his people's good. It's incredible that Genesis, and then this story in particular, this Joseph story, will not let up on the twin truths that God is sovereign over all creation and that God is faithful to his promises. And you see these twin truths sort of weaving in and out all throughout the book of Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Jacob's sons. And this is hugely significant for you who believes in God, if you do. Because there is confidence that we can have in God, in his faithfulness. Why is that? Why is it that we can have confidence in God's faithfulness? It is because it's tied to his sovereignty. And so these two truths are not two separate truths going in different directions, but they're two truths that are going in the same direction and working with one another to bring about his promises. And so the faithfulness of God is tied, dependent on his sovereignty, his power. Right? We know that God has pledged his faithfulness to us, his covenant people. We're not going to have the same promises as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it would really be foolish for us to think that we're going to prosper in the same ways that they are. The Bible never promises that to Um, To us, God is using them uniquely. But yet he promises us his faithfulness. But if someone, something pledges their faithfulness but has no power, we would rethink our own commitments, wouldn't we? Who cares if a cricket says, well, I mean, that'd be pretty amazing if a cricket said something, but if a cricket were to talk and the cricket says, I pledge my faithfulness to you to do anything you want, You would think, who really cares? The best you could do is feed my lizards. Be food for my lizards. But if there is an all-powerful, all-sovereign God, 
who pledges his faithfulness and backs his faithfulness by his sovereign power, then all of a sudden we're like all in. I'm all in. I'm yours. You take me because I trust in you because you have all power. So you see here how God's faithfulness and God's sovereignty is supposed to lead to a robust Christian faith. God's faithfulness draws from, if you want to think about it this way, God's faithfulness draws from the supply of his sovereignty. The generator of his sovereignty. And so when he moves to save, when he moves to be faithful to Jacob, he promises to move the world to save his people. God's sovereignty is seen in so many places in Scripture. One example is found in Psalm 115, verse 3. Uh, go ahead and turn over to Psalm 115, verse 3. It's worth going there. If you're sitting next to somebody that you don't know who might not uh, be familiar with the Bible, you can help them turn there. Psalm 115, verse 3. This is what it says. I'll start in verse 1. It says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness to you be the glory. It says in verse 2, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Look at verse 3. We as people of faith in the God of the Bible reply and say, Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He is no cricket. So here he says, look, we say God is all sovereign. That's where he is. He dwells in the heavenlies as in he has. He possesses all sovereign power. And then, of course, naturally, what does that mean for his people? The people that in the Bible it says that he holds close to his chest in his steadfast love and protects them like a hen does her baby chicks. You look there in verse 9. Naturally, the logical flow is, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You see that there? God's sovereign power naturally leads to a robust faith and trust in God. Where he helps us. He is our shield. He remembers us, as the song goes on to say. And so he blesses us. Jacob is a fantastic example of what it looks like to walk in robust faith. You don't really see it unless you stare at the passage and really see what's going on. This point is made loud and clear uh, that he has a robust faith as he goes towards his death. That's really what these chapters are about. He's walking to his death. You look at 47, chapter 47 of Genesis. Turn back there, chapter 47, verses 29 to 31. I'll go ahead and read that section. And when the time drew near that Israel, that was his God-given name, the covenant name, it's also Jacob. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. That was a way of making an oath. It says, Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my father's. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their dying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
Now, we don't really see it at first glimpse, but when we realize that what's going on here is more than just filial love, a love for his own fathers to be buried in the same place as them, if we begin to look at it, we see that it's so much more than that. When he says he wants to sleep with his fathers, his, he wants his bones laid up with his father's bones, and then his grandfather's bones, he's saying that God has given me a promise. And though I don't see the fulfillment of the promises now in the midst of some degree of suffering, yet I will trust in them. He never sees the fulfillment of the promises. Isn't that interesting? Yet he has faith. He's able to say, okay, I recognize that God has given me that land, but I am dying here in this land. There's no despair, but yet he clings to these promises that God would do it. This is a testimony of his faith here. The land may not be ours now, but nevertheless, that is the land that I am going to rest in. Because that is the land of promise. And Jacob, he moves on and he wants his children to live according to that same promises. He wants his own children to embrace that same type of faith. And you see that too here. Again, this is a testimony of his, of his uh, robust faith. You look there in verse 48 and verse 3. I'll go ahead and look at verse 1 of 48. It says, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. It's a reminder. Once again, he's heading to the deathbed. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. It's fascinating. You know, why does Moses record these words here? Why does Jacob speak these words here before he dies? Before he organizes the foundation of the nation of Israel and the 12 sons, as we're going to look at a little bit later. He does that because he's passing the baton to his children. And what he wants before them as they run their race is the promises of God faithfulness of God, the sovereignty of God. God said, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession. And then you go over to the next chapter again. It's fascinating. You know, here we see again Jacob giving the promise again. Look there in verse 21. Same chapter. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. He's passing the baton to the next generation. And he wants the next generation to know without a doubt the sovereignty of God to fulfill his promises right there. So we see that Jacob's faith is strengthened. And our faith should be strengthened too. You know what Genesis provides for us is God's precedent. God's precedent or examples and guides that we ought to consider as we face our own situations, as we go through suffering, as we go through certain circumstances in this sinful world. And we know that man has all rebelled. I mean, that's if you turn on the news or look at your own life or your neighbor's life, why is it that we struggle and suffer? Because of sins. We've all sinned and have rebelled against God. And this is what we get for living apart from God's sovereignty and his goodness and his love. We're left in a sinful world. But God gives us precedent. 
precedent that no matter what we do, God never abandons his promises, but he is faithful to fulfill them to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Regardless of whether or not your faith wavers, God says, I am faithful. We also have precedent that God can and ought to be trusted. We have precedent that God can and ought to be trusted in the very lives of all these people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They all believed. They all witnessed God's track record as they looked back to see what their fathers did. And his track record, at the end of the day, though there's certainly ups and downs, it calms their fears. And it ought to calm our fears too. You know, if you're a non-Christian, if you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, thank God that there is a better option here than trusting in yourself. Praise God for that. You don't have to look very far in your own track record to see how faithful or more like unfaithful you are. Or even the, the unfaithfulness, the lack of faithfulness of those around you. I mean, is there any shred of doubt that the loved one sitting next to you will ever commit a sin against you? Is there even a shred of doubt that they are going to ever fail in fulfilling their promises? There is no shred of doubt because it is guaranteed that they will fail us. Guaranteed that their promises will, some of them, most of them, maybe even all of them, fall flat on their face. But here, isn't it wonderful? We see God's track record and he says that he never leaves his promises. He never lets them fall to the ground flat on their face. But instead, what we see here is God is faithful and he backs up his faithfulness by his sovereignty and that is seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. So we, on this side of the cross, can look back and see God's faithfulness and his sovereignty. He promises to save those whom he has elected, everyone who ever repents of their sins and believes, and he moves molecules in the world to fulfill it. That's sovereignty. That's the exercise of power where God becomes, the Son of God becomes the God-man who lives a perfect life, the life we should have lived and dies the death we should have died because we have all sinned. And then not only that though, but he raises him from the dead, sovereign power, in order to seat him at his right throat, at his right hand and show that The payment that we needed to pay back to God has, in fact, been paid. That is the track record. But friends, Christians, we oftentimes walk more in fear than in faith, don't we? And the things we fear show us us what we bow our knees to, don't they? The things you fear show us what we bow our knees to. Those are the things that control us. Those are the things that drive us. Those are the things that motivate us. That thing that you can't live without, that thing that you can't imagine living with, when something that rules, when something like that rules your life, that thing, friends, has control over you. That thing is sovereign, at least as you understand it. And we believe the lie that that has more power than God. It's evil how that thing narrows our focus and pushes out of our view 
God's faithfulness to our fathers, isn't it? I mean, in the acts of desperation that you guys go through, which, if you're like me, certainly we can look back and recognize there are some. In the acts of desperation, in our, uh, us feeling that we're falling and we're never going to be rescued, all of a sudden we sort of scoot out everything, all the precedent that God has given us, His faithfulness. The fact that he ought to be trusted, that he can be trusted. And we say, we need to give in to this fear. Forget precedent. God does not got this. So we need to. I need to give in to fear. And God cannot be trusted. How foolish we are. Remember, this is exactly what our fathers did. Isn't that interesting, right? We push out... The evidence that God is faithful to his fathers, but it's funny. There is precedent, too, of what a sinful heart looks like. The fathers all do the same thing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they begin to fear. I mean, just imagine Abraham and Sarah, right? If you can recall back through through, uh, Genesis here. God gives them a promise that they're going to have a whole nation from their progeny, from their children. Right? That's an awesome promise. But the very thing that God promised hinges on the thing they can't do. They can't have children. They're barren. And so they fear. Acts of desperation. You know, you can imagine Sarah saying, after waiting decades to have children with Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah's just like, I can't do it. You need to get another wife. Here, take my servant. That'll work. That's fear. The thing that God promises they cannot do It'll never happen to me because we can't have children. So Sarah laughs. They freak out. They say, I know God said to me those things, but it'll never happen. And I just imagine, you know, us, you know, freaking out, God just says, no. Rely on me. The fulfillment of the promises don't depend on you, but they depend on me. So trust in me. Why are we so quick to write off Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, because of our fears. More importantly, God moving throughout history to be faithful to every single one of his promises. Thankfully, the more we know about the truths of God and his track record, the steadier our faith becomes, doesn't it? Even in our acts of, even our acts of desperation are kept more at bay. Maybe once we used to run to other things or run to other people in pain, But then we think, okay, this is really hard. I really want to do that. Sometimes even we fail. But yet we know that God is with us and that he's faithful. Sometimes maybe we're so used to running to drugs or alcohol. But then we fight those things. We say, no, I I remember God is faithful to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. Doesn't seeing what God did in their situations help us in ours? Look at verse 20 of chapter 50. Look at verse 20 of chapter 50. Seeing God do certain things in their situations helps us in ours. I'll go ahead and read that section. Uh, Let me summarize it first here. Joseph's brothers, they go to him and they want forgiveness for what they've done. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So you see what's going on there. God in his sovereignty is using things for his glory and even for their good according to his sovereign providence. And no sin, not even the brother's sin against Joseph, can stop him. That helps us find comfort in the midst of our own suffering, doesn't it? Like Joseph. Just imagine being apart from his family for 22 years. You know, we might not know exactly what God is doing in the darkness of suffering. But yet, based on the truths of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, we know he is doing something. And he is doing that all according to his steadfast love. The love he pledges to his people and the love that he fulfills towards his people. Seeing what God did in their situation without doubt helps us in ours. But this is not the only way knowing God's track record helps us. Seeing how our forefathers walked in the faith and not by sight helps us walk in the same. You know, I thank God we have this story. Not only because of its happy ending, but also because of its beginning and its middle. Right? When sin is committed against Joseph, yet he trusts And we don't quite know the ending while we're reading the beginning and then in the middle. And then as he is sold into slavery, as then as he locked up into the jail, and then as he's slandered, falsely accused, still he is a man of God. Still he has courage. And then knowing the end of the story helps us see that God will work it out. So we have the beginning and that pains us. And then we got the middle of the story which pains us. And here you should just insert yourself in your own suffering. And yet he is persistent in his faith. And then finally at the end of the story, which we don't know ours. But yet we look at Joseph's and we say, yet God did it again. For us too, Christians, it will work out. It won't be in the same way as it was for them. Again, because he's using them uniquely, but it will work out because God will do it. He has promised salvation to those who repent and believe, and he delivers on that salvation. He has promised you, friends, joy in your life, even in the midst of suffering. And so he will grant it as he is our satisfaction. And he does so as we walk in glad submission to him. He has even, in fact, promised to gather us together once again. Friends, there is our hope, the end. Not only that he will be with us, but yet our suffering will end at one point in time, and he will do it. And these truths lead us to act in faith. Friends, Scripture details a phenomenal track record of God making his promises, and then in his faithfulness and sovereignty, moving to fulfill each and every single one of them. God promises Abraham land, seed, blessing. And though it takes a thousand year, thousands of years to do that, he nevertheless fulfills it in Jesus Christ. Christ is the blessing to all nations. He promises us a land, right? The new heavens and the new earth where Christ reigns over all. And we know without a doubt that that is coming as Christ is king God then moves on and he makes a covenant with Moses to his people that he already had a relationship. He promises them the covenant blessings, but then also the covenant curses. And then Jesus, thousands of years later, comes along and says, of course you deserve the covenant curses. 
Everybody has disobeyed and sinned against God and failed at the law. So go to the judge, friends. That's what he says. So go to the judge in true faith, and there you will be saved and pardoned from your sins. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How's that for track record? God then goes on in 2 Samuel 7 and gives a promise to David, saying that one from your throne will sit on your throne forever. And then finally, many kings later, after kings, after chronicles, finally Christ comes to inaugurate his reign over all, ushering in the kingdom of heaven. But then not only that, you can go through the Old Testament. God makes a promise in the prophetic books. God promises a wayward people who are always whoring after other things. And he says, there will come a day when I will do something new to you. I will take out your hard hearts and give you a heart that is soft towards me. And I will cause you to walk in my ways by the Spirit. And God says, this is the new covenant. And so when Jesus comes along, hundreds of years later, Luke 22, he says, as he's breaking the bread and pouring the cup, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Effective through my cross. And then you go on and look at God's track record to Christ. In Psalm 16, God promises that he would never let his Holy One see corruption and final death. And so after Jesus dies and is laid in the tomb on the third day, he rises from the, raise, God raises him from the dead and Psalm 16 is fulfilled. That's God's track record, which ought to produce confidence in his people who trust in him for everything. So you Christian, just think about the promises that God has given you even though you might face, face some sort of suffering. Just think about the fact that God is working out now His purposes to bring about His promises, and He says He will in the future. God gives us His presence to you. I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28 says. That's something for you, friends, right now and until the end of the age, which we can trust in God's track record to fulfill. God pledges His love to you, Nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans chapter 8. God promises to preserve you until the end, you who are struggling with that sin again and again. But yet God promises to preserve you. No one will snatch you out of my hand, John 10, 28 says. So friends, I do not pretend to know what each and every one of you is going through, the particulars of your suffering and how it racks your soul at night when you are on your own. But I do know God's track record of faithfulness. And if God's faithfulness draws upon God's zealous sovereignty for his people, we need only rest in God and seek by his grace to live in glad submission to him. God's faithfulness to Jacob and to the patriarchs, the rest of the patriarchs, is to give us confidence in the faith. But it is what is brought uh, but it is what is brought up in our next point that really settles our hearts and brings about security in our faith. So before we see we see his track record, how he's faithful to Jacob and then all the other patriarchs, and that gives us confidence in the faith. But this point, point number two, as we see God's faithfulness to his people, it brings about security in our faith. Security in our faith. So just imagine this, right? It's one thing to have confidence. Imagine there's some sort of arm of the government that goes about persecuting lawbreakers. Um, we might be glad that that track record is the case. And to some degree, we would be secure too. 
But here, as God builds the foundation of his Old Testament people, he wants us to feel loved in his track record. Not just know that he's going to get it done, but then to feel loved as he gets it done. And this is really unique. As God pledges his love to his people. You know, in the last few chapters, we see not only God's faithfulness to Jacob and the patriarchs, but his faithfulness to the people of Israel in general. So this might sound strange, um, because Israel at this point in time has not yet been constituted as a nation. It's just Jacob and then his relatives, so a total of 70 people. But imagine how Israel would have received uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote them down hundreds of years later after, uh, after the Israelites were drawn out of Egypt. And then on the brink of the promised land, God, uh, through Moses, gives him this word. Gives them this word. So imagine how this passage would have helped Israel as they saw God's faithfulness to them in laying their nation's foundation hundreds of years before. Imagine being on the, the, the brink of the promised land, being an Israelite, right? We know that our family went down in 70 people. But now you look over at the fields and the valleys of the uh, right as they're about to take the promised land and they see millions all broken down into their tribes, each tribe according to, uh, you know, each person gathered in their tribe. And right before they're entering in the promised land, they think they hear these stories. God's faithfulness to the fathers when there were only a handful of us. It's pretty incredible. You would see evidences of God's faithfulness and His grace as they stand there as part of the multitude. In chapters 48 and 49 of Genesis, the nation of Israel is provided the opportunity to look back to their origins and see God's faithfulness to them as a nation. Specifically, God shows His faithfulness to the nation by showing how the tribes were formed. God shows His faithfulness to the nation by showing how their tribes were formed and then how the baton was passed to the next generation. For those of you unfamiliar with the structure of the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel was broken down, as I mentioned earlier, into tribes, and it, were, it was the sons of Jacob that became the heads of the tribe. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 49, you see here, this, is, this comes in a section where Jacob gives blessings to all of his children, and you see there that Reuben in, chapter, in verse 3 is blessed. Head of a tribe. Verse 5, you have Simeon and Levi, two heads of two tribes. You have verse 8, Judah. Verse 13, you have Zebulun. Verse 14, you have Issachar. Verse 16, you have Dan. Verse 19, you have Gad. Verse 20, you have Asher. Verse 21, Naphtali. 22, Joseph. And then 27, you have Benjamin. Some important things to note here, just as we you know, learn about our own fathers of the faith. Joseph actually comes to be represented by his two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. <clears throat> Jacob, in chapter 48, adopts them as his own children. So if you turn there, look there at 48.1. Joseph was told that his father was ill, and so they go to see him. And it is there that Jacob, mindful of how God would give his people a multitude, he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. 48 verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. 
Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his two sons. Thus, they were included in the formal roll call of Israel. So if you turn to Numbers chapter 1 later on, for example, you'll see there that Joseph is represented by Ephraim and Manasseh. It's in these chapters that God shows his faithfulness to Israel by laying the nation's foundation as Jacob gathers them together. So imagine being of the tribe of Ephraim, being the tribe of Manasseh. You look back and you see your own origins. Chapter 49 contains Jacob's words to his children. Some of them are blessings. Some of them are like anti-blessings. So Reuben, for example, you look there at 49 verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. And we know that his blessing was passed over. He was skipped because of his sin against his father. You look there at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. And they're condemned. Verse 6. Let my soul not come into their counsels because they're known for vengeance and anger. And they go and murder a bunch of people. <clears throat> so there. This is the blessing really to Israel. Here Jacob is protecting Israel from these sons. But nevertheless they are being gathered and giving a word, given a word here. As the baton is passed. You know one thing that stands out. In these blessings. Is the character of God. We saw his track record. In the, in the first point. Now here in these blessings. We see the character of God. Look at 48 verses 15 and 16. Here he's giving uh, blessings. On his, the new sons of his family. <clears throat> and he blessed Joseph. And said the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. The angel there refers to, uh, many people think it's a, it's a uh, revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember when the angel shows up and wrestles with Jacob. <clears throat> but if you notice there, you see the blessing, right? He, play, he, he hopes that they grow into a multitude. But what leads, what, be, be, what goes before the blessing is the character of God. And this is referred to there as a shepherd. You look there in uh, chapter 49, when Jacob goes on to bless Joseph, the same thing comes up. You look there at verse 24. Yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you. He goes on to say, bless him. Here, Joseph stands as a model for his brothers, isn't it? The one that they are to look for, look to. And behind him, above him, the one who helps him, they are to see God as his shepherd. You know, it's no accident that what is highlighted at the beginning and the end of these blessings here, as the baton is passed to the first generation children of Israel, it's no accident that what is highlighted in the acts of God is his character. Both passages, God there is spoken of as shepherd. And with him we have, obviously, presence. We have protection. We have provision. We don't need to be uh, take, after, take care of sheep to know what it's like to have the blessings of a shepherd. The Israelites, right, who are about to take the promised land and go into it. 
They knew that God was their shepherd. God's presence was given to them in the pillar of cloud by day and then a pillar of fire by night as God led them out of Egypt. God's protection was there as he parted the Red Sea and then as they escaped unscathed from Pharaoh. God's provision for them was there as God gave them food from heaven and water from a rock. And then for those who truly believe, you know, think about Israel. Think about us. These chapters added not only confidence, but security. Which is why in Numbers chapter 14, the faithful who want to take the land of Canaan, even though in the face of dangers and threat, they say, we should do it. Because God is with us. This adds something to our knowledge of God, doesn't it? Remember, we're trying to walk by faith and not by sight. Trusting in God's track record, but also trusting in God's character. And it's supposed to make us secure in his promises. Not just God's sovereignty, that he can do it. It is also God's presence, that he never abandons us. In this Genesis story, right, we know that he can do it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But God also makes a point to say that he is with us. 46 verse 3. It says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And this is exactly what Jacob, Jacob clings to, even in death in 48.21. Turn there. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you. Friends, with this God, we can be confident that he fulfills all of his purposes towards those who love him. And we ought to be secure, too, in him as our God and our shepherd. It produces not only confidence to see his track record, but as we look at his character, as he moves about fulfilling his promises, it produces security, a trust, and a knowledge of his love that you, friends, are loved by God. Do you feel secure in Christ? Do you know the love of Christ for you, Christian? The reality is, is that uh, oftentimes we do not feel secure in Jesus Christ. And the reality is, too, is that sometimes we feel like he's abandoned us for one reason or another. So, friend, is that you this morning? If that's you, let me ask you a question. A serious question. What would God need to do for you in order to prove his love for you? I'm not making fun. There's a real question. What would God need to do for you in order to prove his love for you? It's a strange question, isn't it, for you Christians? Because who wants to say that what he has already given us and what he promises to do for us is not enough. It's a weird question. But oftentimes we think those things, don't we? That God needs to do something more than he has already done and more than he promises to do in order to prove his love for me. No Christian wants to say something like that. No Christian wants to look at all the evidence of God's love for us and say, it's not but that is what we do, isn't it? In our bitterness towards God, our anger, our hopelessness. When we turn our backs to God, walking by sight and not by faith. But there is such great evidence that he loves us. 
No one wants to say it's not enough. No one wants to say at his election of you, Christian, before the foundation of the world. No one wants to say that is not enough. Take his acts of sovereign power informed by his infinite wisdom, his knowledge to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, and the church. No one wants to look at those things and say it's not enough. Think about God moving in a certain point in time. He moved in love, in grace, in mercy to save sinners instead of condemning them. Yet when we are not confident, yet we want God to prove his love for us, we say that is not enough. In the incarnation, when the Son of God takes on a likeness of sinful flesh, even though Christ dwells in the heavenly places in all of this glory and perfection, holiness and righteousness, but yet he takes on the likeness of sinful flesh flesh we say it is not enough christ who goes on to live a righteous life even though he himself was slandered even though he is the only one who suffered unjustly unlike any other human and he does this so that all who turn to him can be counted righteous through jesus christ we say that is not enough how about christ suffering for you on the cross Bearing the wrath that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve, though he knew no sin, yet he was made sin to be for us. That is not enough. Though Christ deserved all honor, all praise, and all glory, yet he dies for you on the cross, dying a criminal's death that you deserve, tasting death for you. That is not enough. In his resurrection, God not only raises him, but you too, friends, are raised with Jesus Christ. Where you are at a position showered upon you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is not enough. And now he has given you his very own spirit to dwell with you. To ensure your salvation. To preserve you until the end. He gives you the presence of his spirit. He promises to build the church. And he says not even the gates of hell will overcome building the church. And we say that's not enough. Promises to bring everything to completion, what he started, to sanctify you by his word. And we say that is not enough. And on top of that, he doesn't only save us to walk on our own, but he saves us into a church. He blesses you with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers to help you. And we say this is not enough. Friends, we could do this all day. The things we just mentioned, we have incontrovertible proof, undeniable proof that God will do it, that he is faithful, and that he loves you, Christian, regardless of whether you think he does or not. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See, what great love the Father has for us, that we would be called the children of God. This is the character of your God, friends. And we are meant to take security in it and have confidence in his track record that he is your shepherd and you should not want. Faithful to you, even though you don't deserve it, until the end. Friends, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, let me encourage you to not lay up your hopes in yourself or in other people around you, but in this faithful God. He promises full and free forgiveness, permanent presence, protection, 
provision in His Word through His Son if you would repent of your sins and believe. That's what He promises. And even though the suffering that you experience may be confusing to you or very intense, Joseph's life tells us that we may not immediately know why God does what He does, but we can know unceasingly that God is faithful, sovereign. And just like Monty Williams said earlier, that God is good and that He is loving and that He is working all things out for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. This is what the coach affirmed. And this is what all of this affirms. All of Scripture affirms that God is faithful and good And the clearest evidence of this is in giving His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, Lord, we praise You that You are a God who never fails. And You are a God whose love is unceasing whose grace is deep and whose mercies know no end. Father, we pray that you would help us trust in that even in the midst of our sufferings, even in the midst of our trials, even when people sin against us. Lord, we pray that we would throw ourselves at your feet just as 1 Peter says that we are to cast all of our cares upon you knowing without a shadow of a doubt, that in due time, you will lift us up because you care for us. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would turn to Jesus Christ. And even though we know that he had to go through suffering, yet we saw how he cried out to you in prayer, but yet he trusted. Yet he desired to do your will. And even though he saw death on the cross and burial in the ground, yet, Lord, you raised him from the dead. Lord, we pray that we would know that if that was the plan for Jesus, our Lord and Savior, how much more should that be our path that you carve out for us? But Lord, we pray that the hope in Christ would loom large over our minds, that we would store up all of our hopes in the things that you give us in Jesus Christ the promises that you give us in Christ and your faithfulness to fulfill everything that you give to your people. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, so clearly is our hope in Jesus Christ, and it ought to be in Jesus Christ. And this is what we sing of today. It's a fantastic response as we see the hope that Jacob had, the hope that Joseph had as he was buried in Egypt, embalmed, And it leaves us, Genesis chapter 50, leaves us waiting for God to do it one last time. And then another time, and another time, and another time after that, Joseph is buried, embalmed actually, in Egypt. And that's how Genesis 50 ends. So friends, I pray that as Joseph's hope is in what God would do in the future, so as we store up our hope in Jesus Christ, may our hope too be in what God has done for us in Christ and what He will do in Christ. Let's stand and sing, My Hope is Built.